it's time for the Christian's Hour. Happy New Year, and welcome to TCH and 2024. All through the month of December, we've been taking in the good news brought to the shepherds by the angels on the night of Jesus' birth. But here we are, following all the celebrations of Christmas, and like those shepherds on that incredible night so long ago, the question now remains, what now? Well, this week, we welcome a message by Bob Russell, After the Angels Have Gone. Bob served as the pastor of Southeast Christian Church for 40 years before retiring. Southeast is one of the largest churches in America, located in Louisville, Kentucky. Feel the moment? The year is over, holiday celebrations and the visits are behind us, and now 2024 ominously looms ahead? Do you find yourself wondering, wow, what now? I wonder, I even bet, the shepherds on the night of Jesus' arrival felt something similar. So, with a roadmap gleaned from those shepherds of old of how to navigate from here, here's Bob Russell. The shepherds were absolutely stunned. Incredibly, an angel had just appeared out of nowhere and informed them that the Messiah had been born in nearby Bethlehem. Then suddenly, the whole sky was aglow with angels. Hundreds of them were singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Then just as quickly as they came, the angels disappeared, and the shepherds were left standing alone in the dark pasture, absolutely awestruck at what they had seen and heard. Can't you just picture those shepherds staring at each other in disbelief? And can't you hear the frantic babbling that followed the next couple of minutes? Did you see what I saw, or am I dreaming? I saw it, but I don't believe it. I've never seen anything like that in 20 years of being a shepherd. Where do they come from? One minute it was completely dark, and the next minute the whole sky was so aglow I could barely open my eyes. I was half asleep, and I thought at first it was lightning. You should have seen your face. You were as white as a sheet. Or you're still trembling like a leaf. Can you believe that shepherds would see angels? Well, I need one of you to go home with me. My wife isn't going to believe this story. She's going to swear I was drinking again. What an incredible experience those shepherds had to be visited by angels from heaven. But this morning, I want you to see what the shepherds did after the angels had gone. Because the real test of the Christian life is not how, how well you handle the spiritual highs, but how well you function during the ordinary times. We've just experienced a marvelous Christmas season, and the emotions that were high for Christmas Eve have come crashing down. One of the memories I have from boyhood was one Christmas night when I heard my brother sniffling in bed. Now, we just had a great Christmas day. We got all the toys we wanted. We played all day long. But I heard him sobbing in the darkness. And I said, John, what's wrong with you? He said, 364 more days till another Christmas. Christmas is over, and we face the bleakness of January and the boredom of the daily routine. Well, these shepherds that we read about in Luke 2, beginning with verse 15 provide a positive example of how we ought to react when the angels have gone. The first thing that I noticed that they did was they investigated the evidence. 
Verse 18 says, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the angels told us about. The shepherds examined the angels' report. Now, that meant they had to sacrifice some sleep because the angels had appeared in the middle of the night. It also meant that they had to risk their sheep because somebody uh, was not there to guard them while they were gone. Since this was a matter of extreme importance, however, they did not delay. Verse 18 says, They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And that investigation confirmed the angel's report and fortified their faith. If our faith is going to stand up in the next decade, I believe that it has to be an investigated faith. If you are a Christian simply because of an emotional experience that you had in the past or because of parental influence, I believe that you may not survive because there are going to be increased attacks on basic Christians that will intimidate the weak. Jesus said some seed will fall on shallow soil. It will begin to grow, but because of trouble and persecution from the world, it will quickly fade. Now, I was privileged to grow up in an era when Christianity was popular. That is rapidly changing. Francis Schaeffer dubbed this generation the post-Christian era. And we are rapidly becoming an anti-Christian society. A Gallup poll in 1963 revealed that 65% of those interviewed believed the Bible to be God's word. The identical question was asked in 1992, and only 32% believed the Bible to be the Word of God. A recent Gallup survey asked Americans what group they felt posed the greatest threat to the future of America. 50% of those surveyed listed fundamental Christianity as our greatest, greatest menace. Only 38% listed secular humanism. There is a Christophobia that is mounting in our society. That should not surprise us. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. I believe that we are going to witness intensified attacks on Christians and the Bible. And if your faith is just a shallow emotional faith, you may not survive. The day before Christmas, the local newspaper carried a front page article entitled Fact or Faith, Bishop's book revives debate on accuracy of the Christmas story. It read, Religious scholars have long struggled with the nature of the nativity. In a new book, Born of a Woman, a bishop rethinks the birth of Jesus. Bishop John Shelby Spong argues that the biblical story contains much theological truth, but precious little historical fact. He adds, The account is simply un unbelievable to modern thinking Christians and uh, we cannot accept it as fact, he said, because Matthew's account differs from Luke's account. Matthew talks about a star and wise men coming from afar, and Luke's account talks about uh, shepherds seeing an angel and coming to the manger. Now, those two accounts don't contradict at all. The angels came to the shepherds nearby Bethlehem. They went and visited the baby in the stable. The wise men came from afar and visited the baby later in a house. Either the Reverend Spong hasn't read the scripture or he just chooses deliberately not to believe it. It doesn't contradict at all. 
several years ago, I was asked by a professor at the University of Louisville to come and talk on my view of evangelical Christianity. His class was studying world religions. I talked for about 45 minutes. I asked if there were any questions. And one young man said, yes, I have a question. You say your church is based on the Bible, but how can you believe in the Bible when the Bible contradicts itself? Now, I wanted to ask him, just what contradiction do you have in mind? Because there is a very small list of supposed contradictions, and most are easily explainable. Most of the time when people say the Bible contradicts itself, they don't have a contradiction in mind. They're just parroting what they've heard somebody else say. But I didn't want to belittle him. Besides, I was afraid that maybe he knew one of the contradictions that I didn't have a good answer to. So I asked him, I said, let's suppose that you are a judge in a courtroom, And there are two witnesses who come and they give the very same testimony verbatim. What would you conclude? He said, I'd conclude that they were lying. I said, why? Well, he said, if they have the same testimony verbatim, obviously they have corroborated their story and they're making it up. I said, right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like four witnesses in a courtroom. They each tell the same story about the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ, but they come at it from a different angle. And the fact that they have different parts to tell doesn't impugn their testimony. It rather enhances their credibility. But if our faith is going to withstand attack, it's got to be an investigated faith. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We can't just say, well, I believe in biblical values or I, Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so because there are people who are going to say to you, I believe the Bible is an antiquated book. Why do you believe in the Bible? And we better do enough investigation into fulfilled prophecy and manuscript reliability and historical accuracy and archaeological verification so we can give a reason for the hope that we possess. We've also got to investigate enough to determine the truthfulness of some of the media accounts that we read. There are dozens of well-written conservative books verifying the truthfulness of the Christmas story. Why does a local newspaper choose to put the extreme maverick-like views of the Reverend Spong on the front page? Why not quote Cal Thomas or Charles Colson or Josh McDowell or Dr. Henry Morris? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is controversy sells newspapers. But the second is the liberal bent is more consistent with the editorial philosophy of the newspaper. The majority of the primary players in the media today have been trained in liberal universities that believe that there are no absolutes and that fundamental faith is naive and dangerous and that man is his own God. Alan Bloom, in his excellent secular book, The Closing of the American Mind, wrote, Relativism has not opened American minds to new truths. It has only closed them to old truths. And so there's a lot of peer pressure to plug into what is the accepted theory of our day. So we have the the liberal philosophy being promoted in the media. Now, in the 60s and 70s, Russian Christians would read the Soviet news coming out of Pravda, and they knew that they were getting government propaganda, and they had to be perceptive enough to read between the lines. And the Christians in Russia would toss out much of the biased information that they were receiving. Now, as our media becomes increasingly 
liberal and Christophobic, we are going to have to become increasingly perceptive as we read or listen. The book of Acts, the 17th chapter, says the Berean Christians were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And if our faith is going to be strong, we've got to investigate the truthfulness of what we're hearing and reading. You see, the world may get brainwashed by the repetition of pagan propaganda, but Christians may need to be of a different mindset, a counterculture philosophy. Titus 1.9 reads, We must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There are all kinds of pagan ideas floating out there, being repeated, and we have to be careful that we don't get sucked into the popular philosophy of our culture. Romans 8 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It can't please God. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. These shepherds investigated the evidence to see if it was true. The second thing that they did was they shared the good news. Verse 17 reads, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And everybody who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds said. They were aggressively evangelistic. No angel had to command them to go tell others. They just did it automatically. They did not stop at the local well and talk small talk. Well, what do you think the weather's going to be tomorrow? What's the price of sheep in the marketplace? No, they said, we got to tell you what's happened to us. We've seen angels. We saw the Messiah. They evangelized even though they had limited information. They did not understand that little baby was going to grow up and die on a cross and be raised from the dead. But they went out and spread the news as they understood it. Some Christians blame their tepid evangelistic efforts on the fact that they don't know enough. And they've been using that excuse for 10 or 12, 15 years. Nothing will motivate you to study like sharing what you do know and being asked questions that you can't fully answer. But the fact is, we speak about a lot of things we don't know much about. We talk about basketball constantly, and we don't know everything about basketball, but we're not ashamed to let our ignorance show. We talk about politics and cars and current events and child-rearing unashamedly, even though we don't have all the answers. A friend once said to Winston Churchill, I've never shown you a picture of my grandchildren, have I? And Churchill responded, no, and I've always appreciated that too. We don't hesitate to talk about our grandchildren, even though people don't want to hear it. But we excuse ourselves from talking about the Lord on the basis I don't know enough. But you know, the best evangelists are usually the newest Christians, because they're the most excited. Evangelism is just the natural byproduct of a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ. Andrew went to his brother Peter and said, I think I've found the Messiah. Come and see. The woman at the well went into Samaria and she brought half the town back to see Jesus, a man who told her everything that she'd ever done. I love the story in John 9 where a man has been healed by Jesus of blindness and he immediately begins to praise Jesus everywhere he goes. And the enemies of Christ were so jealous of Jesus that they called in the former blind man and they interrogated him and said, do you think that man who healed you is a prophet or not? And I love the blind man's answer. He said, I don't know whether he's a prophet or not, but this I do know. I once was blind. Now I see. He just gave testimony to what he had experienced in life. Now, Christianity is more than an annual Christmas celebration. It is a daily proclamation. It's not enough for us to examine the evidence of Jesus being the Messiah. We have a responsibility to aggressively share the news. 
Jesus commanded his followers, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in my name, and then teach them everything that I've commanded you. People say, well, you don't want to impose your values on other people. Jesus said, you go preach and you go teach. I visited a maximum security prison outside Washington, D.C. a while back with uh, Charles Colson of Prison Fellowship. Charles Colson, former Watergate conspirator, advisor to President Nixon, man who was converted to Christ, now a brilliant Christian author and speaker, and he has a passion for uh, prison ministry, prison fellowship. And I would go up to a prisoner and try to warm up and talk small talk, but I watched Chuck Colson go into the innermost part of that prison to men who were in 10 by 10 cells and reach through the bar and shake hands with them and say, Hi, Chuck Colson, how are you doing? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm over here talking about the poster on the wall and about the food in the prison, and he's talking about Jesus Christ. And we have got to develop a way to be bold about our faith without being obnoxious. We cannot be satisfied to be around people and never talk about the Lord, never even invite them to church. You know why I don't, I, I think we don't evangelize very much? It's not because we don't believe in Christ. The reason we don't evangelize is that we're not really convinced that anybody's lost. And it's hard to draw the line between is that person saved or are they lost? And so we just kind of assume that everybody's saved. If you were in a restaurant sitting by the kitchen and you looked into the kitchen and a horrible fire was blazing up, even though it made you feel uncomfortable to do so, and even though people didn't want to hear it, you'd stand up and say, we all need to get out of here. There's a fire in there. Now, it's not until we're convinced that people are lost without Jesus Christ that we are motivated to be evangelistic. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. A Catholic magazine did a survey which revealed that the majority of people believed in hell, but only 22% believed that Hitler was there. Only 15% believed Stalin was there. Only 10% believed that Judas was there. You see, our problem is not that we don't believe in Christ and not that we don't believe in eternity. We just don't think anybody's really going to be lost. But if we're going to be convinced that people need Christ and we're going to be convinced to be aggressive, then we have to be convinced that the Scripture is true, that there is a hell, and many are going there. But we bypass people every day who are spiritually lost, and we make no attempt at rescuing them. We just assume everybody's okay. One of the things I loved about the Christmas pageant was it provided an opportunity for people to invite others who were non-church who were not Christian. And I had a lot of people come up to me and say, I've got some friends I invited. They've not been in church for years. I don't know whether they're saved or not, but I, they really need the Lord, and I, I hope they'll keep coming back. Well, that's the way it ought to be, but not just at Christmas time. There ought to be that aggressiveness about evangelism all the time. The early Christians were aggressive. Peter and John were told, don't you speak anymore in the streets of Jerusalem about Jesus. And they said, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. 
Paul was told, don't you preach anymore. We'll throw you in prison. And he said, the love of Christ constrains me. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Once he said, I would just as soon die and be lost myself if some of my fellow Jewish friends could come to know Christ. Like these shepherds, we've got to be convinced we have good news to share. This Jesus is the Messiah who can save people for eternity. So the shepherds investigated the claims, then they shared the good news, and finally they returned to their jobs. Verse 20 says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard. There came a time when they had to go back to their flocks. They had a marvelous experience, but now they had to go back to the mundane existence in the field. I think they must have talked about that night for months. Where were you when that happened? What did you think about it? I was over here. What? Yeah. But there came a time when it was all old news. They quit rehashing it so much and went back to work. I don't think they were ever quite the same. They went back praising and glorifying God, but they had to go back to tending sheep. There comes a time when we all have to go back to our daily routine. Remember the story in Scripture about the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus into the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His countenance became dazzling white. Suddenly Moses and Elijah, figures from centuries past, were standing with Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And the disciples fell on their face in worship. But then Moses and Elijah disappeared, and Jesus' countenance became normal. And Peter said, Lord, this is wonderful. We need to build three statues, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, so that we can come back up here and remember this experience. And Jesus said, no, Peter, we're needed at the foot of the mountain. They went back down the mountain, and there was a demon-possessed boy who needed healing. In other words, there are spiritual mountain peaks in life of the Christian that are meant to be enjoyed, but not necessarily duplicated. When you first gave your life to Christ or when you witness a close friend becoming a Christian, when you're off of a retreat or a child is born or a child marries a Christian, prayer is answered. You'd like to bottle those experiences and keep them forever. But the mountain peaks are rare. Life is lived in the valley of the routine. And it's imperative that our expectations be realistic. The mountain peaks are wonderful, but they're sporadic. The real test of the Christian is how well do you do in the valley? You're not expected to be on a spiritual high all the time. You are expected to be faithful when you're not as excited. There are times when my ministry has been dramatic. The real test of my ministry is how well do I do six months later or six years later when Monday morning comes and the alarm rings at 6 a.m. and I don't feel like getting up and going to church and studying for Wednesday night church. And during those valley experiences, I try to remember this poem. The test of a man's devotion will come some other day. They love God most who are at their post when the crowds have gone away. And I think I don't want to, but I need to, and I will. How do you function when the angels have gone? When the thrill of your conversion is behind you, can you be faithful? When the ego boosts are non-existent on your job, do you keep arriving on time? When the words of encouragement have faded from your marriage, do you keep being thoughtful and kind? Mike Royko is a colorful editorial writer for the Chicago Tribune, and he related that a friend of his was getting serious about a woman, 
so we said they were going to a seaside resort together for a few days to see if they clicked before deciding about marriage. Royko said, of course they will click together at a seaside resort. Everything's right. So he suggested that his friend line up some more realistic experiences to see if he clicked with her. He said, he said if you want to see if you click, borrow several whiny children with runny noses and a tendency for car sickness and take them on a drive in the country on a hot day with the air conditioner turned off. If you want to see if you click with her, tell her you're playing a fast game of softball and you'll not be gone long and wander in at 2 a.m. with a dozen of your teammates and sit down at the kitchen table and ask her to whip up some sandwiches for you and your buddies and see if she appears visibly happy to be your hostess. If you want to see if you click, get a bad cold and lie on the couch watching the ball game over the weekend, coughing and wheezing, complaining about how miserable you are, and ask her to bring you some aspirin, orange juice, and change the channel on the television set, and watch closely to see if she appears grateful for the opportunity to take care of you. How do you do when the honeymoon's over? Cavett Roberts said, Character is the ability to stay with a resolution long after the mood in which the resolution was made has left. People, life has some super exciting moments, but not many of them. For the most part, life is made up of ordinary events, taking down the Christmas tree, driving to work on Monday morning, studying to teach your Sunday school class, eating a common meal with your family, tending the sheep, and the test of maturity is the ability to appreciate each moment to the fullest and to be faithful even after the angels have gone. Howard Thurman wrote, When the song of the angels is silent, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are again tending the sheep, when the manger is darkened and still, the work of Christmas begins. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you don't have a church home. Maybe on this very ordinary day, you decide it's time to make a commitment. If you're not a Christian or you don't know if you're a Christian, maybe on this ordinary day, you decide, I'm going to make sure my life is in Christ. I'm going to obey his command to confess him before men. I'm going to surrender my life to him and be baptized into him the way he commanded even though this is not a dramatic day or dramatic sermon. The Lord does not ask that you be perfect. He just asks that you sign up for life and sign up to grow in Him. Shout of praise with the unison voice. Sing a song reaching heaven with the shout of praise as we worship with all of our hearts. Burst into song. Oh, mountains. Burst into song. Oh, heavens. Burst into song. Burst into song. Burst into song. Oh, mountains. Burst into song. Oh, heavens. Burst into song. Burst into song. Shout of praise with the unison voice. Singing praise to the Father with a shout. Of praise, singing praises uh, with all of our hearts. Burst into song, oh, mountains. Burst into song, oh, heavens. Burst into song, burst into song. Burst into song, oh, mountains. Burst into song, oh, heavens. 
song. This people burst into song. Shout of praise. Our thanks to Bob Russell for today's message and to Acapella Ministries for their ministry through music. In today's message, Bob unpacked how, after the angels had gone, the shepherds investigated the evidence of what had happened, shared the good news, and then they returned to their jobs living faithfully according to what they had seen and heard. Well, now that Christmas and its festivities are over, what now is perhaps the question. And perhaps this is the year to look again at the evidence of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, and commit now to share that good news with an excitement as if we had just found it. And in 2024, purpose in our hearts to live as if this changes everything. Like a copy of today's program, you can download it online from our website, thechristianshour.org. You'll also find us at oneplace.org, iTunes, and Google Play. If you prefer a free copy of this program on CD, just give us a call. Our number is 515-770-2241. That's 515-770-2241. Please leave your name and mailing address when you call. We'll send your free copy on CD. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week for the TCH Broadcast.